All right. Well, you may have guessed that we're going to talk about judging today. Um, but first, I wanted to do a little recap and remind all y'all, uh, that's a southern term that means everybody in the room, okay? So I just wanted to uh, remind all y'all uh, what the purpose of this message series is all about. Uh, last week, Amber talked about the importance of making ourselves available to other people. Availability is the practice of selflessness with our time and with our energies. And it can make a huge difference in the lives of the people that you live with and that you work with and that you go to school with. Because in our task-driven, over-programmed world, we tend to be a little selfish with how we relate to other people in our lives. And this is all connected to character transformation. Getting rid of the vices that run and ruin my mind, body, and soul. And replacing them with the virtues that Jesus taught about and modeled for us. But character change doesn't come overnight. And and it doesn't come without effort. Amber said last week, um, this is one of the more profound things that she said last week. She said that if we want virtue to be trending in our life, we have to work on it. And this process is almost always painful. Parts of our life must die. But the truth is, those parts are killing us anyways. So dump them. And as a way to prepare for this message series, I explored an incredible book by David Brooks called The Road to Character. I highly recommend uh, reading it if if you're into reading. It's a great book. Uh, But some of the statements that the author makes hit me hard as I poured over the pages. Brooks talked about uh, how uh, defeating weakness often means letting parts of your life die. And muting the sound of your own ego so that you can see the world clearly. And this echoes what Amber addressed last week. Another point made in the book that connects to last week is on busyness. And Brooks says, It's a culture in which people are defined by their external abilities and achievements. In which a cult of busyness develops as everybody frantically tells each other how overcommitted they are. But if you behave with habitual self-discipline, you will become constant and dependable. The things that lead us astray are short-term. Lust, fear, vanity, gluttony. The things that we call character endure over long-term. Courage, honesty, humility. People with character are capable of a long obedience in the same direction of staying attached to people and causes and callings consistently through thick and thin. And this all comes back to the purpose of this series. Our aim is to become a people who present themselves mature in Christ because character matters. And we want to choose what counts over what's catchy. And as promised, we're talking about the vice of judging, about being judgmental. And we're going to talk about its opposite, the virtue of seeking. Now, Jesus gave us a command in Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. He said, do not judge. And as you can see on the screen, that's the New International Version translation, which is what I commonly go to. However, this is one of those places where I think the old King James Version has the right edge to it. And King James puts it like this. Thou shalt not judge. And when you use this version, you almost have to say it with some attitude. And you got to use your index finger to do a little sanctified finger wagging just to make sure that the point is made. 
Now, I know that you don't have a problem judging, but somebody around you may. It might even be somebody that's sitting right next to you. It's amazing how sneaky judgmentalism is. You can actually start to feel judgmental towards people just by saying, thou shalt not judge. It's kind of fun to point your finger at somebody too. And that's what we're talking about today. Jesus said, thou shalt not judge. Now, when it comes to judging people, how many exceptions does Jesus permit? Based on their personalities, which are obnoxious, their faults, which are countless, their odd religious beliefs, which we all know are wrong, and their sexuality, their orientation, their political stance, their ghastly tattoos, their, just their sheer unlikability, when does, Jesus, when does Jesus say, oh, you can condemn them? You know, clearly they merit condemnation. Nobody. He allows no exceptions in this. There are no loopholes. He doesn't say, hey, try not to make a habit of judging or don't judge somebody unless they really have it coming. Jesus says, in the kingdom, there's a no tolerance policy on judging. In fact, Jesus actually got in trouble for his refusal to be judgmental towards people who everybody else, especially religious leaders, judged. We're told one time religious leaders said this. And this is from Luke 15, uh, verse 2. It says, But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Where people expected Jesus to bring judgment and condemnation, because that would be the moral thing to do. Jesus brought welcome and acceptance. In fact, Jesus offered non-judgmental acceptance to ethnic rejects and religious heretics, to pagans, to Samaritans, to the sexually scandalous, to the corrupt and traitorous tax collectors, and to the unclean, untouched lepers. Interestingly enough, the only people Jesus condemned were religious leaders who condemned other people in the name of God. Jesus had a bunch of woes for the religious leaders who passed judgment on others. Check this out. The text says, But the Pharisee was surprised when he noticed Jesus did not first wash before the meal. Then the Lord said to him, Now then, you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You foolish people, did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? But now, as for what is inside you, be generous to the poor. And everything will be clean for you. And here come the woes. Okay, Jesus says, Woe to you, Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint, rue, and all other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you love the most important seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, because you are like unmarked graves, which people walk over without knowing it. One of the experts of the law answered him, Teacher, when you say these things, you insult us also. And Jesus replied, And you experts in the law, woe to you, because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry. And you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. Whoa. <laughs> Jesus wasn't messing around, was he? 
He was incredibly non-judgmental with sinners of every kind. With this one exception, people who judged others. Thou shalt not judge. In fact, this flows out of the very purpose of Jesus. John's gospel says, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. In fact, Jesus was so opposed to condemnation, Paul tells us in Romans 8. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. How much condemnation? Not a little condemnation. Not occasional condemnation. Paul says there is no condemnation. Jesus' purpose in coming to overthrow the spirit of condemnation and judgmentalism and bring acceptance to all humanity was utmost important to him. His practice was to refuse to engage in judging and instead offer welcome and acceptance, even at the ultimate personal cost. His teaching was, do not judge. Thou shalt not judge. Therefore, the church, the body of Christ that's charged with carrying out his mission, must be the least judgmental place on earth. If Christians are known for anything, if followers of Jesus have a reputation for anything at all, it has to be this. This place is a non-judgmental, radically inclusive, grace-offering, soul-healing, fear-melting, misfit-embracing community of a rational acceptance. People would say, you know, I have some really dark secrets. I'm not sure I can tell my therapist this, my bartender this, my 12-step group this, my best friend or my dog this, because they might judge me. But I can stand up and say this about myself in the church because I know that's a place that, where judges, that judges nobody. If you meet someone on an airplane and it looks like he might have a problem, he's heavily tattooed, heavily pierced, and his breath has the smell of alcohol on it, the first thing you should tell him is, I'm a Christian. So that he will say, that's great. I'm so messed up financially, emotionally, sexually, morally, relationally. I was afraid to sit next to somebody who might judge me. But now that I know that you're a Christian, I'll tell you everything because I know this will be a place of grace. Let me ask you, how are Christians doing at being non-judgmental? David Kinnaman who is the president of the Barner Research Group, wrote a book several years ago called Unchristian. The number one finding in this book was the primary characteristic that non-Christians associated with Christians. And that was being judgmental in the face of Jesus' teaching, thou shalt not judge. I've heard some Christians try to justify that by saying, well, the real problem isn't really Christians. It's just that non-Christians don't want to be confronted with hard moral truths. Maybe. But isn't it ironic how Jesus was when people met him, the holiest man they ever met? And he was also the most judgmental human being they'd ever met? Maybe. Just maybe. The word holy means something different than we think it means. As we talk about the simple teaching of Jesus, thou shalt not judge, We have to be really clear on what the text means. So I'm going to spend a little bit of time talking about what this text does not mean. First, it does not mean we have to 
give up making moral discernments or being wise. If I go to the dentist and she looks inside my mouth and says, I see your gums are receding, you've got a couple cavities, it looks like you haven't been flossing, that's the dentist's job. The dentist is not condemning me as a person. But if my dentist says to me, you idiot, do you even know what a toothbrush is? Your teeth are yellow and crooked. Your breath is disgusting. I despise. I have contempt on your so-called oral hygiene. It's more like oral gene. <laughs> I might want to change dentists. In our families, in our workplaces, in our relationships, in our homes, we must discern right from wrong. We must train ourselves to hold people responsible to discuss their mistakes, and even assign consequences where that's appropriate without diminishing their worth or forgetting their dignity as human beings. Also, Jesus is not saying that in being non-judgmental, you have to be naive or offer blind acceptance. And here's another thing. Do not judge does not mean you have to put up with being mistreated. I heard a guy once tell a story about a time he received a text that read, if you want to know who loves you more, your spouse or your dog, lock them both up in the closet when you leave in the morning. And when you come home and let them out, which one is happiest to see you? Okay, that's not the idea. But judging Jesus forbids means having a spirit of condemnation and rejection. It means indulging this desire that makes me feel superior to you. I don't want to be humble. I don't want to think about your humanity. I want that little feeling of pleasure that comes with expressing contempt toward you. Condemnation will cripple another soul. And it intends to. We've been conditioned by the kingdom of this earth. We have been trained to pass judgment as a way of trying to control other people. We're able to do it effortlessly without even thinking about it. We can do it with just a look. So if judging is something the Bible generally, and Jesus in particular, prohibits, if it damages other people and corrodes our own spirits, why would anybody do it? Why would anybody do that? I think the basic reason that we judge is that it's kind of fun. We do it recreationally. You will, be, you will notice religious people in particular have a problem with being judgmental. And often, the more devout their faith, the more judgmental they become. Often it works this way. We're judgmental towards people we're jealous of because we're afraid that they might actually be having more fun, having more of the good life than we are. And we don't like that. Sometimes self-righteous Christians will just pretend we're above earthly pleasures and fleshly desires. We're far superior to that. The reality is, at least for a little while, sin is fun. It actually is a big reason why people sin. My fellow covenant pastor Craig Rochelle at Life Church puts it like this. If sin isn't fun, you're not doing it right. A lot of times, religious people get self-righteous and judgmental because deep down, we're afraid we're missing out on the fun, on the good stuff. We judge because it kind of makes us feel superior. 
It's the fun that we're allowed to have. A major symptom, perhaps the biggest symptom of judging is gossip. And it's the most subtle, subversive sin in our day. And gossiping is hard to detect because it usually happens in secret with just one or two other people. But why do we do it? I think that gossip allows us to escape into a world where we are superior about the people that we're talking about or the person that we're talking about. Their weaknesses and faults are exposed. And we conveniently forget that we have any faults of our own. We also gossip because we get a little reward from the person that we're gossiping with. You know, they they start to lean in a little bit and they listen a little more eagerly. Then you get a little bit more excited. You both get a little thrill of gratification from feeling superior to the poor person that you're gossiping about. Of course we would never do what they did. Mm -mm -mm. Isn't that too bad? We better pray for that person. Remember, if sin isn't fun, you're not doing it right. After moving to Kansas, Amber and I spent a lot of time searching for new friends. We would gather with a specific group of people every once in a while. And what we began to notice is that there was a tendency for one person in particular to gossip. And it made us really uncomfortable to even be in the same room as that person, even if we didn't encourage it. And one day, I decided to ask someone else in the group about it. I wondered if the gossiping was kind of a normal thing, a regular thing. And that's when this person told me, there's not a secret in Wichita that so-and-so isn't willing to share. And that's when we decided to leave the group. Jesus says, thou shalt not judge. Do not judge. Then there's a very powerful dynamic at work that Jesus teaches in this passage. And he goes on to say, For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. He's observing here a general law of the human condition, which might be called the law of reciprocity. You tend to get back what you give out. If you give love, you tend to get love. If you give anger, you tend to get anger. If you give sarcasm, you tend to get sarcasm. If you give joy, you tend to get joy. So you tend to get back what you give out. And Jesus says, with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So this is a bucket, in case you didn't know. And this is a teaspoon. And you get to decide every day what measure you're going to use. Do you give a bucket of encouragement to people or do you give a teaspoon? Do you give a bucket of mercy to people or do you give a teaspoon? Do you give a bucket of anger to people or do you give a teaspoon? How about when it comes to judgment? Jesus says, for in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. In other words, judge others as you would have others judge you. How would I like to be judged? How much mercy would I like? A teaspoon of mercy or a bucket? And when you come to judge me, which you may because I'm likely to mess up, I would prefer you give me a bucket of mercy. I want you to remember that there's a whole story behind my life. 
When I do something judgeable, I want you to take into account my history, my family background, my shortcomings, my hidden pain. Don't forget the fact that I'm a wacky Floridian. I'm bald. Right? I'm pretty insecure. All right? I'm a closet introvert. I tell bad jokes. I'm OCD. In fact, I'm so OCD, I'm CDO because I have to alphabetize the letters. You see, I do tell bad jokes. And never gets old. Thank you. Thank you for the support. I want a bucket of mercy. But do I give mercy by the bucket? Do I give mercy by the bucket? In a very real way, I learned a lot about this while on staff at our church in Florida. One of the senior pastors would walk up and down the halls announcing her work schedule. She was a bit of a loud talker to begin with, but it seemed like she went out of her way to tell everyone how busy her schedule was. I have a 10 o'clock with the finance team, then I've got to run to the hospital to visit somebody, but I can't stay too long because I have a lunch meeting with the pastor from the Lutheran church. I'll be back to the church to finish writing my sermon, and I'll probably go home for just a little bit only because I have a night meeting with the ad hoc committee. It aggravated me to no end. And I thought, why does she have to prove she's always busy? Why is it important for us to know that she's a hard worker? My heart was turning hard. I wasn't loving her. I was judging her. You see, love always identifies with. Judgment distances from. One day, we're in a creative team meeting at church, and she told a story that changed the way I viewed her. She told us that her dad was a Methodist pastor, and part of his job is that he gets moved every few years. Well, the summer after her junior year, he got moved again. So she had to finish high school in a new city, in a new school. Knowing no one, she decided to run for senior class vice president. Now, we all know these elections are purely a popularity contest. No way should a brand new kid win vice president of her senior class. But she decided to run anyways, and she won. Excited about her victory, she did what any of us would do. She raced home to share the good news. Hey, Mom, guess what? I just got senior class vice president. And her mom said, why didn't you get president? In that moment, I realized why she announced her schedule to everybody in the building. What would it do to me if I was always having to prove myself to other people, including my own mother? When I look at other people, do I remember that they have stories? They have wounds. They have scars. They have parents. They have hurts. Philo of Alexandria said, Be kind. For everyone you meet is fighting a great battle. Do I really give mercy by the teaspoon? Or do I give it by the bucket? With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And when you do that, see, when you look beyond the surface failure and the shame, and you just give somebody a bucket of mercy that they weren't expecting, it can change their life. And they can change your life too. 
Looking beyond the surface is called seeking, which is the title of this message. In his book, The Good and Beautiful Life, James Bryan Smith talks about the virtue of seeking as a way to root out the vice of judging. Because here's the thing. We can't stop sinning only by trying to stop sinning. And you can't stop being judgmental by trying hard to not be judgmental. You can't do it all on your own. I must ask God to replace a spirit of judgment with a spirit-powered, reality-based, genuine acceptance. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 7, Jesus tells us, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. What Jesus said in this passage, and what Jim Smith points out in this book, is that we must start by asking God to help us see the other person in a different light, in a new way. And we can do that through prayer. Have you ever noticed that when you genuinely pray for somebody and you pray for the relationship with that person, that it's actually hard to be bitter towards them? That's because you're inviting God to work in the midst of the issue. So step one is ask. Step two is seek. Seeking just means looking for answers. So asking questions is a great way to seek. And when you do that, when you ask somebody questions about their life, you begin to understand more of the story. And you begin to discover that there's so much going on below the surface that you didn't realize. And Jesus teaches us that seeking leads to finding. And finding leads to loving. When I learned more about the senior pastor story, I had compassion for her. So those times when she'd announced her schedule to the whole building, my heart went out to her. Finally, step three is knock. I believe this is the intentional act of community with the person. Today, knocking may be texting somebody and inviting them out to lunch or to grab a cup of coffee. Maybe it's just calling somebody and having a conversation. But whatever that may be, it's a step that you take in order to communicate that person, hey, I care. I'm available to you. I'm here for you. We have to be willing to come alongside and participate with them and to make sacrifices with our time and our energies. And as you leave today, there's a soul training exercise for you. The key to spiritual formation and character transformation into Christ-likeness is to put into practice the things that Jesus taught about, trusting him to be right about it. And then over time, you will discover how life-giving and life-changing it is. So here's a soul training exercise for this week. And I'd like you to be willing to experiment with this for several weeks, okay? This week, ask God to help you with gossip. Gossip can be defined as speaking negatively about someone who isn't present. And after you pray and ask God for help, 
I want you to go three days in a row without gossiping. This is tougher than you think, but I want you to give it a try. And if you're with someone who starts gossiping about somebody else, here's what you do. One option, simply walk away. Second option is refuse to participate and change the subject as soon as you can. Maybe even say something nice about the person that they're gossiping about. Restraint often inspires restraint. They'll notice that you're not indulging in gossip, and that will help influence them to not gossip either. And the final step of this exercise is to write a little bit about it. Jot, jot it down. Ask yourself, what did, what did I discover in this exercise? Was it harder than I thought? Was it easier? How did I feel afterwards? And you may want to write that down in a journal. I would even encourage you to write it in your Bible. Write along the margins of Matthew 7. So every time you come back to that passage, you remember what happened when you practiced not gossiping. Was Jesus on to something when he said, thou shalt not judge? So this week, just set aside all judgments. And as you offer love rather than condemnation to your friends and your enemies, to your parents and your children, to your classmates, to your spouse, to your ex-spouse, to your employees, your employer, your coworkers, to your neighbors, to the people you serve, to the people who serve you, you will experience a new level of grace. You will begin to experience a new level of joy. You will begin to be more at peace. You will find yourself entering into deeper relational moments because people will begin to open up to you and they won't even understand why they're doing it. You will begin to brood less and you'll begin to worry less and you'll begin to think about yourself less. And then you begin to encourage more. And you will be blessed. And you will be a blessing. Okay? Let's go to God in prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father, I, my prayer this morning is that you help us with our judging. With our spirit of judgment that we carry around with us more often than we'd like to admit. Would you allow us to live in the radical freedom from condemnation that's all around us? And then God, make us conduits of blessing rather than judges and condemners to everyone, to all who are in our lives, to all whose paths we cross. May they find radical acceptance and love that flows through the person and the spirit of Jesus. And we pray this together. In his mighty and loving name, amen. Well, we are about to uh, enter into our time of the offering, and so I'd like to invite our ushers to come forward as we prepare for that. And a lot of times it's this point in the service where people start to feel a little uneasy. They're like, oh, you know, is anybody going to watch me not drop anything into the basket? Is somebody judging me? Well, this is a safe place. 
This is the church. A place where Jesus invites us and commands us and teaches us to not judge. But this is also a time for us to honor God, to worship God. This is a time to trust God with what God has been doing in our lives. And so we want to participate in that. We want to be excited about that. And say, God, I'm handing this over and I'm going to trust that you're going to do something incredible with it. Maybe within the four walls of this building, but maybe out into our community, in our neighborhoods, and in our world. But this is a part of the disciplined life, the life of a disciple, an apprentice of Jesus. This is part of our worship. And so, um, do it with a, a glad and sincere heart. Do it with joy. Do it with courage. And let's, let's pray to God and thank God for what has happened in our life. Oh, gracious God, you have just poured out blessing upon blessing in our lives. And uh, it's hard to recall all the ways that um, you have worked in us. But God, we feel it. And we're so grateful. And this time is just a, a way for us to say thank you. It's a way for us to worship you. It's a way for us to trust you. And so God, I just I pray that we put our faith and trust in you. I know that uh, you are at work. Even when we walk out of here, even when we are in our homes, even when we're lying in bed asleep at night, God, you are at work in our lives and in our world. God, would you help us to uh, have a, a spirit of seeking? Would you help us to uh, be good askers of questions so that we can uh, come to understand uh, the people in our lives, our neighbors and family and our friends in really powerful ways? We can be in close-knit, authentic community with them and with you. I pray all these things. In Jesus' name, amen.